The views that I express on this podcast are mine, and the same for our co-host Juan Pablo. Well, they're his. Listening to Panoptic, relating theories of communication, power, and technology to practical institutional issues and everyday life. Welcome to the podcast. Juan, how do you feel about bringing IBM Watson into your classroom? You'd basically never have to read a book again. Watson will do and sort all your research, providing only the relevant bits, so you can finish your dissertation and teach your classes more effectively than ever. Is this a good thing or not? It sounds amazing. Um... But then I immediately start thinking about questions like, "Wait, how much of my how much of my work is Watson gonna do? You know, is is Watson gonna just give me the capacity to sort of do what I maybe more efficiently something I already do, which is I can pull up a PDF and search terms and sort of move move real quickly through a PDF of a book I might already have read, therefore allowing me to to sort of visit moments in the in the text and concepts and or is it gonna like just give me a summary like spark notes of like a theoretical argument and then i just accept that as like a a relevant summary right i think that you know we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence today and that there are a lot of different categories of artificial intelligence the kind of as a if, if i were a professor like you the kind of artificial intelligence i'd be really worried about is the general artificial intelligence, which when we're dealing with something a little bit more conscious that matches or exceeds the intellectual capacity of a human. And lucky for you, I don't know, lucky for me too, looking for all of us, we're probably not anywhere close to having something like that. Yeah, that's, that sounds good for <laughs> aspiring university professors. We, we're the only ones that have general intelligence. I think there's so many ways a conversation on artificial intelligence could go given the themes of our podcast. There's yeah. the history and philosophical underpinnings of automation, which we briefly touched on during the first episode. There's the science of AI and machine learning. There's the economic, social, and cultural impacts of automating away jobs. And in my in my line of work, the optics of implementing process automation isn't great, as you can imagine. We kind of discussed this as well. From a, yeah. an employee perspective, it means like you're you're not going to be working here that much longer. <laughs> that, that's <laughs> <really> fun. <laughs> This it's never good news. Yeah, the the perception isn't entirely accurate. Sometimes it's it's wrong, but um, you know, AI, like I mentioned, it's an um, it's an umbrella term for all sorts of technologies. And often when people think of AI, they're thinking of that super intelligence that's going to replace professors and doctors. Uh, they're you know the the kind of AI that would rival or exceed human intellect. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, engineers are going to tell you that this kind of AI is many many years away. Um, and I think there's some that either think it's not possible, but you have, you, you know, we talked about Elon Musk and then there are others like Hawking, uh, Max Tegmark. They've expressed pretty dystopic concerns about the threat of an artificial general intelligence. And you get into kind of like Terminator like Armageddon situations there. Hmm. I think it's a good thing that this technology, if it will ever exist, won't exist for a very long time. 
Uh, and when we talk about the AI of today, I think we're really talking about process automation, uh, machine learning, as in M IBM's Watson. And um, you know, it's worth noting that neither of us are software engineers, unless you've been holding on to me one. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, maybe one day we'll bring on an expert to, um, for our own credibility's sake, to check our um, our um, analysis of the situation. But uh, in the meantime, I think we have a, a good conversation that's going to focus mostly on the dystopic implications of technology. And yeah, um, no, I mean, technology in both of our fields is pretty significant. I know that's that's been a, a large part of your studies, Juan. Yeah, I'm uh, my sort of dissertation. My dissertation is shaping up to be very much about the question of perception, as it's uh, formed by and re and relates to techniques, and to the and as that sort of formulates or organizes the question of experience, uh, and I and I look at that obviously through more more in the question of more through the the realm of aesthetics. So we can we can think about the relation between art, techniques, perception, and how that shapes people's experience over the history and and uh, how, in a sense, that experience is a, is a, also a political question. How do people relate to their past, to their present, and then reimagine or think about possible futures? Well, would you mind defining techniques for people who may have not heard technology described in that way before? Ah, that's a really difficult question. But uh, the the philosopher Bruno Latour has, I think, a a, a pretty decent, uh, or at least, a pretty easily uh, explainable uh, idea of what uh, techniques would be. Techniques would relate to operations, operations, uh, operations in terms of an assemblage of components that come together to facilitate some sort of operation and that cause a change in them, the kind of force that can be produced. So, you know, before before the hammer, I just have my hand and if I want to build something, that's going to be a lot of work when it comes to, uh, to doing certain type of actions. But once I have a hammer and I have the nail, these sort of tools and creation and products that, I've, that human beings have created, suddenly my capacity for uh, building is in is shifted right there's a shift in force and capacity and it's all up and it's not just the tool that brings it about it's the sort of capacity for operations it's the operations that that are uh, created in the assemblage of hand tool nail and so forth so that's that's one possible sort of way to look at techniques got it well technology is obviously one of the core themes of this podcast and uh you know, we know technology has the potential to transform everything from how we conduct business and create and perceive value and how we individuate and relate to each other. So I imagine we're going to have many more conversations that touch upon the theoretical and practical challenges and advantages of AI. So Juan, you introduced yeah. me a few weeks ago to a French, is he French? French philosopher? He, he, uh, he is. French philosopher of techniques called Bernard Stiegler. And he paints a rather dour picture of AI. So how would you feel about us setting the stage a bit? Let's discuss a very brief history of AI and its impacts, and then we can kind of hone in on Stiegler's critique of technology. That sounds good. Cool. And it's not that Stiegler's critique is the critique, but it'll be one that we'll talk about today. Yeah, I think he'll give us a... It, he's obviously a very... Uh, you know, when I sent you the 
the article I told you, this is a very uh, provocative piece. And uh, and I think it was, right? I think it sort of sets us to think about some problems about uh, the digital uh, AI. And, and that's what we're going to talk about today, right? Yeah, but it's also a complete jargon bomb. So it took a little time to <laughs> sift through it. Yes. For someone like me, who, who's a little bit less familiar with Derrida, Heidegger, and these are all people he's pulling from. But yeah. um, after many Google searches and conversations with you, I think we're in a good place to uh, have this conversation. Yeah, and, and we'll talk a little more about his, his method of writing, I think, at some point, and how, in a sense, as he's as he his work, especially lately, has become even more jargony, and maybe we can relate that to his own question of AI. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. And, he's, and, he, and Stiegler writes almost exclusively now in sort of jargons, so <laughs> he'll have these very long terms like, Neganthropology, and uh, in a you know spruce you know just sort of just sort of thrown into a sentence, and you and, and and first the first time he uses them he might not he might not even give you a, a definition for that what that term is you have to sort of figure it out as you read along. No definitions. No definitions. No. No def- Well, you know, there's a li- there's not a linear argument, which is something we'll talk about. Also, he kind of yeah. He kind of starts giving you definitions later down the the line. At first, he just throws out some really provocative statements, and you're like, "What?" Do you do you think uh, f- philosophy would benefit from some uh, communication specialist? That, that's probably a conversation for another episode. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, you know, I think that's a continuing discussion, obviously outside and inside academia, from people who look at it from the outside and people who are in it is the language that's being used, the concept, the way they're being used. Uh, and I think this links to our I think this links to our conversation for sure, which is in one of Stiegler's term is this question of uh, grammatization, and then we'll get to that in a little bit. But the way that the way that we kind of need we kind of need this these exterior concepts, even if they can be sound like jargon, to uh, to think further. Yeah, you know they're kind of prosthetics in a sense. But they're also uh, problematic, especially if you don't speak that language. Yeah, and, and when you work your way through this, it's a short read. It's a it's a good read, and there's some yeah. There's a it's a very uh, robust critique, I think, even if we don't fully buy into it. So we'll get there. I think let, let's yeah. let's kind of traverse the industrial revolutions and see where we ended up today with AI. What are some of the impacts, and then we can get into Stiegler. Okay, so. Let's kind of go back to the first industrial revolution. And this takes place around the 18th century in Britain with the rest of Europe lagging. And it's characterized by the transition from an agrarian economy into an industrial economy. And some of the key technology changes at this point, you see a mining and the use of iron and steel and the use of new energy sources like coal, the steam engine, electricity, petroleum, and the internal combustion engine. There were also machine inventions like the spinning jenny and power loom don't ask me what those things do to increase labor productivity (laughs) Um, and you also have the organization of labor changed as well favoring the factory system where laborers were assigned different parts of a manufacturing process or task and you had the construction of railways roads canals and other infrastructure to support trade and um, you know due to an economic recession the industrialization started to slow around 1830 well there's you know there are there are various historiographies of what these processes were like and all of them are a little different um 
you know, more Marxist historians are going to emphasize as well things like shifts in the way people are thinking about property and things like that. So they're going to think they're going to trace a fundamental change in the what they call the enclosures, especially in England, and the, when uh, landowners start to think of their land, uh, when the sort of aristocracy started thinking of their land, oh, this is actually something that, that you can yield rent from. And they started seeing their sort of peasants or the peasants that lived on that land and that sort of used that land in a, in a, without, you know, without sort of paying for it uh, as sort of things that needed, as sort of peasants that people that needed to be expel, expelled from that land in order to make that land, whether to rent it, whether to use it to do uh, mechanized agriculture. And so they'll talk about the enclosures as necessary, as, as sort of fundamental to creating a working class. You know, people to go work in the factories who used to be peasants, and people who work to work as wage labor in, in farms. So there's a, there's a lot. I think there's that's uh, there's a lot to talk about with uh, these industrial revolutions, also from a context of changing ideas, changing modes of relations, and all that. And I think a lot of those a lot of those issues really come into fruition with the second industrial revolution, where you see kind of the rise of. Uh, Fordism that we discussed with Foucault in our first episode. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so, so this starts around 1850, where the technologies of the first industrial revolution have spread across Britain, Germany, the United States, France, Italy, and Japan. And during this period, you have um, energy, communications, factory machinery, and transportation. They all become more efficient, more accessible, and more globalized. You also have the introduction of automobiles and telecommunications and the development of new infrastructure. So... Like I said, kind of Henry Ford and the rise of Fordism comes into the picture. This all kind of, and, and, and that kind of gets into um, around the start of World War One, where uh, you had a lot of factories uh, manically producing munitions and weapons to support the war and where these kind of mechanisms of production and consumption mm -hmm. uh, really become important. Yeah. It's not exactly clear when the second industrial revolution stops, but eventually we, we get into kind of a more digitized time with the rise of the internet. Uh, and that's around the 1960s, and you have more advanced telecommunications, computers, transistors, and microprocessors. And for the first time, we see the introduction of automations and robots into the factory to increase labor efficiency. So... I did a little digging. If you look at the Bureau of Labor Stats between 1990 and 2015, there is a relationship between massive increases in manufacturing output and massive reductions to manufacturing employment. So some of this is due to globalization, but a lot of it is due to automation. Yeah, yeah. So often we hear uh, economists argue that after a period of adjustment, those laid off because of technology find new jobs. So I, I've had this question, I've had debates about this with friends too. Where did the factory workers of the third industrial revolution go after their jobs were automated away? And, you know, I've searched the internets, but I couldn't find a good answer to this question. Um, I think some of them were probably upskilled or reskilled for better or other types of jobs. But it's, it's worth noting that the U.S. labor force participation, uh, participation rate has been trending down. It has been for over 15 years and by roughly 5% since 2000. So it currently sits around 63%. Huh. So the um, amount of people who consider themselves part of the labor force has been on the decline. Yeah. Uh, 
a question about those statistics. So is this, uh, are these massive increases in manufacturing output with reductions in employment, U.S.-based stats or global? U.S. I don't know. I don't know about globe. I mean, they have global uh, global uh, comparisons as well. I didn't look at those for for this episode, yeah. though. Just focus. Be interesting on the to look at global because another thing to take with, into consideration with this would be the way a lot of manufacturing uh, has been taken overseas. So China has picked up the brunt of manufacturing in the world. Basically, China is the one that makes everything that we buy. That's you know in our WalMarts or in our Targets. It's all coming from places like China, uh, where there's tons of manufacturing going on. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The manufacturing that was being done in the Midwest or it was being done in in uh, Germany or it was done in Japan in the 60s and 70s, 50s, 60s, and 70s is now being done in China, Bangladesh, Mexico, along the border, uh, and places where labor is a lot cheaper. Yeah. And I mean, imagine what happens to these economies that are still industrializing, that are still transitioning from an agrarian economy to an industrial economy, when you have kind of at a rapid rate, these automations being introduced into the workplace. Right. But, and then I think, well, let's, let's, uh, you know, there's something to, to talk about soon is in a minute is, is different types of automation and yeah. how we want to think about automating of the, that, those final tasks with our, which are in a, in a sense, maybe manufacturing tasks. Yeah. What, you know, what, what can be automated? Well, I, I had a few more points about the economic impacts. So, yeah. um, you know, we've seen automation is already moving beyond the factory space. So we've seen millions of jobs lost to automation in the Midwest and soon it's probably going to occur yeah. across the country and throughout the world. And, uh, yeah. I found, yeah. you know, there are currently 3000 companies focusing on AI and thousands more are adopting AI capabilities to operate leaner more efficiently and more competitively. So you see a lot of media and public figures arguing that we've already entered this adjustment period that economists speak of. And I mentioned Andrew Yang in the last episode. He's probably the loudest one right now because he's running for president and campaigning on this UBI as a solution to automation or a treatment for automation, if not a solution. Hmm. And, you know, one example I found, there's uh, the editor at The Conversation, Beth Daly. She says uh, it's now evident that the Brexit vote in the UK and the election of President Donald Trump in the US were driven to a major extent by economic grievances. And she goes on to suggest that we're just beginning to realize the vast majority of these economic grievances are technology related. So that's just kind of yeah. a snapshot of some of the economic challenges and, yeah. and the economic critique or part of the economic critique of technology or advanced technology today and into the future. Yeah. And I'm not sure if I agree with her assessment, but I see... But I do think that technology has been a huge part of it. Yeah, it's it's I mean, and that's kind of the crux of Andrew Yang's uh, bid for the presidency. So I'd be one. I hope he gets to the debate stage. Not that we will see any substantial debate actually happen, but it, I'd like to see him <laughs> deal with some difficult, right. difficult contentions to that. Yeah, I have. I'm not uh, I wouldn't be holding my breath about <laughs> some great debate about automation <laughs> taking place at the at the well we'll we'll get to that i think when the time comes i don't know i've heard uh, joe biden has been taking some uh, lessons in coding and software engineering so great he's going to show up at the convention <laughs> or whatever and make you know have a smiley face open its mouth or something and say peace yeah <laughs> Anyway, um, I'll, 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 I'll finish on, you know, we're just verging on a fourth industrial revolution. 
according to some at least. So mm-hmm. I would say this revolution is characterized by the rise of big data, AI, machine learning, and advanced analytics. And you know these technologies are only going to accelerate the automation or elimination of labor. And you know what happens to the trucking industry when you know the trucking industry they it employs roughly 1.5 million people. And what happens well, when it becomes fully autonomous? There, there's you've got 1.5 million people out of a job. Yeah, and you know there, there's a Wall Street Journal article I read that argues that individuals who lose their jobs to process automations can be transformed into software engineers and coder, uh, coders given the right program. But I don't know about you, Juan, but to me that seems extremely unlikely. Not that it seems yeah. When you have 50, a 50 year old bus driver, I think the last thing he wants to do is become a coder yeah and go work at you know go do a internship at google with 20 year olds and play you know and play uh what's the name of that harry potter sport quidditch you know at, you can play quidditch with 20 year olds at the google you know headquarters i don't see that happening <laughs> no i only know that because i'm not actually not really a harry potter fan sorry um but I went to Emerson, Sorry, yeah. Just, <laughs> I went to Emerson just, College, and our our, uh, our um, like primary athletic was Quidditch. <laughs> so, of course, I don't know what that says about which Emerson. Is all right, or, which is great. I mean, I'm all for it, but but I don't think 50 year olds nowadays are really trying to you know go from yeah they, being f- 50 year olds don't like Quidditch. Quidditch. <laughs> they don't like Quidditch, so. I don't think yeah. maybe in maybe in th- thirty years, fifty year olds will like Quidditch. But our fifty year olds now, who are going to be automated or their jobs, don't want to go play Quidditch. Yeah, I don't think they're interested so in coding. Think... And as far as I know, no, the U.S. government isn't really good at training and reskilling. So you know, under the current economic structure, it's going to be up to companies to train and reskill their employees. And this can be done. I, I say that as a consultant who provides strategies to successfully perform these kinds of transformations. And Salesforce is an example. It's an organization that has pledged to train 500,000 Americans for the jobs of tomorrow. But but not all companies have the resources or the will to do such a thing. So yeah, yeah. Um, what else to? Okay, so beyond the economic impacts, the technologies of the fourth industrial revolution are already doing some crazy things, and it's not all dystopic. So I I know um, Stiegler is going to argue <laughs> Just otherwise. Most of it, yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. He's going to argue. Well, he's going to argue that it's completely this topic. <laughs> I mean, I I've personally seen software developers build process automation bots in a program called UiPath, and I'm actually hoping to learn this skill myself. And these are these are algorithmic bots that take over your desktop and perform a series of tasks like searching the web, entering and pulling information, sending emails. And sharing data between systems. And UiPath is relatively simple to use. So a lot of people could probably uh, build their own bots by watching a few uh, YouTube videos. And they could be putting their own workforces out of work in no time. Or or getting their dissertations written by a bot. Exactly, yeah. Although that's going to be a little harder from a a process automation standpoint. No. Um, I mean, that's where you'd need an IBM Watson. And, you know, like we said, that's a machine learning tool who you know it rapidly collects and interprets data and provides recommendations to augment or enhance human intelligence and you you from in the in the philosophical literature i think it's like you you mentioned it's called uh, prosthesis right yeah i think yeah, i think you know this this goes back to thinking of technology as a sort of prosthetic hmm. as a sort of extension of our 
even a, almost as an organ, extent a technical organ that can we can use to get perceive things and um, relate to the world and then do things and and that extends our capabilities. Yeah, well, I mean, I I think you know I'm not saying there aren't downsides to something like this, but I I think Watson could really fit into our conversation on creating shared value, assuming you're willing mm-hmm. to see the right side of technology. You know, it has huge potential to improve medicine, research, teaching, and perhaps even diplomacy Definitely, and yeah. policymaking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, you know, another uplifting example, there's a nonprofit that's using an AI algorithm and satellite imagery to track the air pollution, including CO2 emissions of every power plant across the globe in real time, and it's going to make this data public. Yeah. So that's yeah, another that's, that's, awesome thing that, that's going right, to have. It uh, creates a tool for, for discussion in the pub, you know, in the public domain, whether that's for activists or whether it's for politicians or yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's the kind of power you, that you can wield with this sort of, with the big data and data analysis and things like that. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a really positive way of potentially impacting the markets. So you can get companies feeling pressured to, to change their behaviors because um, they're going to be held more accountable when, when they're forced to be more transparent about what they're doing. Uh, or at least we would hope, but we would hope. We're yeah. not here to talk about. We're not here to talk about utopia, oh. Jason. We're here to talk about dystopia. All right. Well, let's let's talk about dystopia. Let's get into <laughs> um, Stiegler. Unless you have other utopian, you know, maybe maybe no. To be fair, maybe we want to talk about more other utopian sort of um, things that this this these capacities can do. I think you, you mentioned a couple of things, right? Big data, data analysis, machine learning. Uh, and so forth. And these are all things that are not that could be for general intelligence, right? I think you were, you were, I, th- I think you were sort of distinguishing these these elements, and that's important, I think, to keep in mind in in our upcoming conversation of Stiegler, right? What are these? These are different things. They do different different ways of uh, of using uh, of automating, right? They're not. We can't just sort of think of them as one one automation, right? Yeah, these are all very different things that do very different things, and they all work together in a certain extent. And in, in mm-hmm. a general artificial intelligence capacity, I guess you would see them all working together, um, plus plus something like consciousness, which is a, a scary situation, but potentially a, a good situation. It really depends on, on what kind of future we want to create for ourselves, um, how... Uh, I mean, if you're a libertarian, you're really going to hate hate kind of the technological future where basically technology proves to us that libertarian freedom is impossible because everything we do and know and feel will be predicted. Hmm. Uh, and those are, <laughs> there's going to be a, an identity and existential crisis associated with, with those kinds of realizations, I think. Well, I mean, this question, this idea, what you just threw out there, I think this notion that everything in, we, that we do could be predicted, I think really gets us to the kind of critique that Bernard Stiegler wants to make, right? Yep. Um, and, uh, well, I think we should, why don't we, in, how would you feel about introducing, Ber- we can introduce Bernard Stiegler and then talk about some of his concepts. Yeah. Uh, Let's get into Bernard- the uh, neganthropology of automatic society. By Bernard Excellent. Stiegler. <laughs> yeah, so 
So we read this, you know, we read this chapter in a in a recent uh, publication, and the the name of the chapter is Fora Neganthropology of Automatic Society, and the writer is Bernard Stiegler, who's a who's a prominent sort of philosopher, a thinker of the the question of techniques and as it relates to time, experience, uh, the the evolution and and of the the human and so forth. Uh, and it's a really, you know, as as we were sort of talking about earlier, it's a really dense, jargon-filled text. It's a short text. There's a lot of stuff packed in there. Uh, and Stiegler is sort of, he's a he's a pupil of he was an actual pupil of of, of Derrida. Uh, also interesting, as as we were talking about, he was actually a bank robber. That was his first <laughs> sort of major, you know, his okay. first full time <laughs> sort of thing that he did and then while in jail he started reading philosophy and via correspondence uh, with uh, other philosophers outside of jail he started started forming himself as a philosopher now he's he's actually a major uh, figure which is really a a, a really interesting turnaround of a life right and uh, and he's he's very he's highly influenced by Derrida he's highly influenced by uh, Heidegger as well as well as we'll see maybe in a minute and and uh maybe you know i'm gonna give a why don't i we jump right in there and talk about some of these concepts that he that he gives us right yeah uh there's a concept of retention and he, he you know this is a this is a really important concept for stiegler which he kind of takes from from edmund Husserl, the german philosopher who was also a teacher of heidegger and for him what he means by retention is is Retention is basically per, your perception of the world. Uh, you're, when you're in the world and you're perceiving the world, uh, you're sort of retaining these experiences, and that's that's what he calls first retention. Now, this becomes a second retention through memory. You know, the capacity to remember your previous experiences, and then and then everything. You know, all your other first, all your other sort of perceptions going. As when you're when you're a human being are sort of colored or in a sense uh, interpreted in relation to your memory to your secondary retentions, but for Stiegler he comes up with this notion of tertiary retention. Uh, in his he comes up for it in previous works. He kind of elaborates this idea in one of his works, uh, Techniques and Time, which is a three volume work on where he's kind of doing a reading of uh, Heidegger's Being in Time, but he's focusing on techniques. And uh, tertiary retention are what he calls sort of the mnemotechnical traces inscribed in the world. Uh, these are, again, these are kind of prosthetics. And that's everything from writing to mechanical objects and tools, archives, libraries, and of course, digital networks. And these are elements that for him are necessary for knowledge to be constituted in a sense. For knowledge to be constituted, it has to be exteriorized in these objects. That, and we kind of enter the world you know, language, for example, we enter the world and we're formed, socialized through language or through our relation to specific tools and specific objects that exist in the world. Uh, this is really important for him. Uh, what did you think about this this idea of ter- tertiary retention, Jason? I think, um, so I mean, tertiary retention, as in my interpretation of what he was saying, is really just inscribing information, Right. So it's a way of externalizing something that we can re-internalize at a certain point. I have that. You, would you agree with that interpretation? 
Yes. Yeah, I think, you know, and that gets to the idea that once it's inscribed in, let's say, uh, an archive or a, or a language, right? A set of concepts and ideas for thinking about the world. The next generation or the, you know, people who are then relating to the world through that are in a sense being formed by, by that. Um, it's not some kind of linear relation. It's a sort of recursive relation between the, the things that we exteriorize and the ways they come out, kind of feed back into our own development. So, you know, this is, and this is what he calls, Stiegler calls grammatization. Um, right. Which he calls, in a sense, uh, for him, grammatization is uh, sort of a technical history of the repetition of what he calls discretized mental and behavioral flows. So, you know, people have experiences, they, they, they talk about them in language, they come up for words for them. And then when they have it, and then the next generation is sort of learns these words and, and that gives them a, a sense of, that basically colors the way that they think about the world, about different behaviors, about... Uh, about different uh, memories and things like that. Yeah, so so this uh, undergirds this what he calls individuation, right? So mm -hmm. um, yep. basically, you have exactly. the individuation of the I of the individual. Then you have the individuation yep. of the we at the social level, and both of them complement each other and feed each other. And within the space between the I and the we, kind of the the um, this landscape where we have symbols and things that we relate to and, and how we share meaning and how we, you know, the tools we create. Um, yeah. That's the, this kind of technical landscape where techniques exist. And it's all based on this kind of dialectic that's happening between the I and the we. Yeah. And the I and the we, and the I and the we in the context of, of uh, the tertiary retentions that are forming the e the i and the e and 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 through which you know individuation is happening yeah right so we could you know let's go to the simplest level i think and talk about language you know language is is very you know i and we are sort of uh linguistic terms that already point to this individuation but uh, they do so within a specific grammatical framework that is uh that has all these different concepts and and words and and so forth so let you know the whole linguistic system that a person or us is, is born in and sort of is responsible, uh, or in a sense, determines the specific uh, individuation of the I and the we. Yeah, but so so I guess the issue really comes up where um, now our tertiary retentions are starting to be uh, outsourced or, or to or or contained within automatons, which are really automations he calls them right yeah yeah and then we start and, to, to have face some philosophical challenges right and this relates to his concept of the pharmacon right so for him for him i, I think if we un we can understand the pharmacon as this as this uh element of technical change this technical element that creates what he calls both entropy and negentropy and uh you know the way i understand uh, entropy, I think, is is as uh, as a sort of repetition, automated repetition. Uh, you know, through through automated repetition, uh, whether it's in an algorithm or whether it's, in, whether it's in a machine that can do a process over and over again, uh, we get a certain entropy and automated repetition. But we also get uh, you know new forms of individuation of the we and the I. Now, it seems to me 
that the problem though is what he's really kind of worried about is how this externalization that takes place of, of sort of certain capacities or knowledge or ideas the problem for him is that it becomes sort of autonomous in a sense and then in, in a way it, it starts organizing totally organizing experience right and make making sort of our first and secondary retentions sort of invading the space of the second first and secondary retentions uh, or you you could even say bypassing the space of the secondary retentions and just sort of automating our our uh our our first retentions and and not allowing for us for specific capacity for for reflection almost yeah so um you know, getting back, you, you mentioned Pharmacon. So I think what he means by that, that technology can serve, or these automatons can serve as both remedy and poison. Yeah. And that's because, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's the, these autonom- uh, automations are the, are the product of, and today a means of harmonizing or becoming human. Yeah. But it also produces, like you said, entropy and negentropy at the same time. So making technology a continuous threat to how we um, individuate and become human. So I, I think what I'm trying to translate him here into uh, into um, more understandable terms. So I think what he's getting at right, here is that right. increasingly techniques are enabling a greater sense of life freedom to access information, communicate, purchase resources, and so on. So it's more freely than ever. But also, they're making us less free because we're more easily monitored, influenced, and exploited. And the way he explains this, here's, uh, I quote, um, to generate the production and auto-capture by individuals of the, those tertiary retentions that are personal data, spatializing their psychosocial temporalities. And I'm abbreviating here. It thus becomes possible to remotely control one by one the members of a network. So Stiegler, he calls this hyper-control. And, um, yeah. you know, getting back to our first conversation on Foucault and the Panopticon, you know, it's almost like he's saying the internet here and the crowdsourcing that happens on the internet coupled with big data and, and the analysis of, of all, all of us when we, we've kind of reduced our identities to numbers on Instagram or whatever. Um, the, it's, it, the internet just becomes kind of this global digital Panopticon. In a, in a sense, right? Yeah, I think you're. I think that's a good. Um, that's a that's a very good connection. I, th- on and and this gets back to I think the the ambivalence that he has, and this gets back to this, these terms entrop- entropy and negentropy. On the one hand, we need kind of the the exteriorization exteriorization of knowledge in order to then sort of have further capacity for knowledge. We need archives to 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 sort of remember the past. We need libraries to access knowledge we need um and the digital makes that so much more accessible right i can i can go on to uh i can log on to my university sort of database and pick and download articles that were written hundreds of years ago or two years ago or so forth right but but uh this automation or this sort of the problem for him seems to be that even though we need this sort of exteriorization of uh sort of these external organs, the way so he sort of calls them technical organs that are neither biological, they're not biological, these external organs. The, there's always the danger, right? This is the entropy that part. This is the always the danger that uh, that uh, retention uh, can become 
you know, that tertiary retention can bypass sort of secondary retention and uh, perception, you know, our specific, our experience of the world, like our experience of how we live every day can be projected purely onto the technical support, which is then sort of giving us sort of organizing our experience without our, without us having any capacity to sort of stop and, and in a sense sort of, sort of come up with our own, come up with our own concepts for, uh, what to do and this is this is curious for him this is this is crucial for him too the question is for him one of bifurcations what he calls bifurcations being able to make decisions having one having more than one option and saying this one rather than that one he, he makes the case that computers can't do that which is i think interesting uh we we, we might want to talk about whether that's a problem when we think about what general intelligence might be like for ai but he makes he makes the process that this is purely a human capacity, um, not in a humanist sense, but only in the sense of uh, a sort of embodied creature uh, that has, and, and that's a problem I think in terms of what do you, does he mean by that? He doesn't really flesh it out. But what do you, what did you think about that, Jason? Yeah, well, so I, I think you know getting into you talk about exteriorization into these techniques. So, um, and that kind of gets into this other uh, term that he uses quite a bit called proletarianization which has some marxist mm -hmm. connotations yeah and so definitely i think let's just try to get to the point of all this which is you know from a from a stieglerian perspective we're going to become more dissociated from our experiences and the knowledge that make up those experiences and thus we can't individuate and i form identity as concretely as we used to and it's only going to get worse as we continue to exteriorize into these techniques and we don't re-interiorize that knowledge and that's especially problematic with um, our ability to analyze critically mm -hmm. because yeah. these automations with big data and advanced analytics, they don't really need their, I mean, their processes are going to be based on reason, but they don't really have to follow um, any uh, method of reason or a scientific method like we would as human beings because they can just, you know, they, they can do this kind of analysis in the, you know, in a second. And it's something that, that we're not going to be able to do. So we're going to become more dependent on these automations to do this kind of stuff and thus less capable of doing those kinds of analyses. So essentially, where you hear a lot of um, technologists claiming that the, the, the great threat is that um, AI are going to become more intelligent than us and then wreak havoc on humanity because, you know, we'll be like ants. Well, from um, yeah. a Stieglerian perspective, the problem is that it's not that the AI will become smarter than us. The problem is that we're going to become dumber. Yeah, right. Gener general stupefaction is basically the word that, that Stiegler is using, right? We're going to become as smart as the machine makes us, in a sense, by organizing our experience in, in alignment with with its... And this is where uh, this is where Stiegler says, you know, basically experiences gets formed by automatic drives. It's based by the drives that are in, in a sense, coded into the algorithm, which are, which are not about stopping and choosing between options, which are just about following a protocol. Well, I mean, to me, this this brings us a little bit to to the historical narrative, right? Of that he's that he's trying to put together, and I think maybe with this historical narrative. We can tie to the question of the the various industrial revolutions that you were sort of glossing over, right? Because 
the this the idea of these various historical revolu uh, sorry industrial revolutions is one is a is a kind of a telling of history and of, of a narrative of history and Stiegler offers us a different narrative of history right and I would say that at the basis of this narrative is for him techniques is techniques and technology is the central defining category through which to think of history and it's with whenever there is a, a sort of technological development there's a, there's an interruption he calls it and suspension of social rules and behaviors and there's a destruction of social systems uh, but there's also a, a capacity to create sort of maybe new new forms of of negantropy uh, of of relating to these external techniques and in a sense creating new conditions for uh, for for collectively sort of making decisions about you know a choice or b choice so he, he i think and he, he sort of highlights three three specific sort of technical or epical shift epical shifts right uh, what did you make of his categorization which is we can discuss i think each one in a bit what what did you make of that one this is sort of historical narrative so um he starts with there's this first shift where we exteriorize our knowledge or i guess the proletariat he, he talked so it's basically the the wage worker working class they begin to exteriorize their work knowledge or their labor knowledge in machines so they become more dissociated from what they're producing and the, the, I mean, this is more of a Marxist critique, I think, and I think you'll be able to elaborate a little bit more on the significance of this. But it's a critique mm -hmm. of, of the Fordist model, in a sense, right? So this and, th and this maybe correlates to what we're what you were talking about in the, under the heading of first industrial revolution, right? Uh, for him, it seems like what's cu crucial to think about here is the way uh, he calls it mechanical ter tertiary retention, the way sort of our work knowledge, the way we used to relate to our tools, to build things, to produce things, is uh, in a sense automated through machines so that instead of, you know, instead of uh, people carrying out artisanal or kind of work-based processes that are very hands-on, there's uh, there are these new technologies that come and, and can take over those tasks and the human becomes a sort of another element in the process of production that's that's sort of rep based on repetitions uh, rather than let's say let's say you know some some deep artisanal knowledge of of a process that would take a certain amount of skill so skill also is being in a sense extracted to the machine i think is is what he's trying to say to a certain extent the the question i asked you earlier so the relationship between the uh, producer and the tools they're using or or the uh, the products that they are producing is becoming more fuzzy and i guess there could be some like identity or existential crisis in that kind of um, degrading of that relationship but the question i asked you before is you know like so what that seems like less of an urgent issue when you compare it to climate change or um uh you know any other you know uh conflict with with foreign countries or something why should we be so concerned about this kind of relationship breaking down so i guess the answer was was more nested in a, in a marxist critique yeah i mean that's the interesting thing about this piece it's not really clear to me um you know how he's trying to use this term proletarianist 
proletarianization. Uh, I think that's a little ambivalent. On the one hand, he's picking up on this notion that there's a separate, for which for Marx was really crucial, which is there's a separation between um, workers and their means of production. So, and, and implicit in this idea is this, this notion that before, that there was a time when they were, you know, artisans and they related to their work a certain way, and that within the industrial revolution, with these new me mechanical technologies, with the rise of capitalism, there's a sort of separation of, there's an alienation from from sort of work in a sense. Um, but I'm not so sure if he's, if, if, you know, he seems to pick up on this idea of a separation of a sort of loss of work knowledge he calls it but he doesn't he doesn't elaborate on that so it's it's not clear to me whether he's picking up on the other elements of what you know what marx is critiquing which is marx is not so much uh, worried about industrial technology per se he's worried about the way industrial technology relates to the rise of capitalism as a mode of production which is based on Specifically, it, it it necessitates sort of the, the the separation of workers from means of production in order to have workers who have nothing to sell but their labor. Uh, so you know this is this is a different. He, I'm, not, I'm not sure if he's taking that up because he doesn't. Again, he doesn't elaborate on how he how he how he's using this term. Right. Well, okay. So he he, he goes on to say that as we industrialize, we have you know television with media and entertainment and. We start exteriorizing our knowledge and experiences through television, and then through yeah, that, right. through that, you know, relationship, we become less. Uh, we dissociate more from life knowledge, and you know, our relationships and how we view ourselves and yeah. uh, how we judge other people. So we become right. more, right. Um, I probably more vain, as I imagine, is what he's saying. Yeah, it's an interesting critique because again, here he speak, he's speaking up. Picking up, I think, on some motifs and themes from um, really older sort of cultural critique. Um, I think the most famously uh, uh, Theodore Adorno's sort of notion of the culture industry. And again, he doesn't elaborate it, so it's not really sure how much of that he would be borrowing from. But the no, you know, Adorno's notion is that, uh, in a sense, come sort of culture under capitalism is all about producing consumers. Whereas, again, it's not clear to me that he's, uh, how much of that Marxist critique he's taking up. But for him, it seems like through television, through this, through, you know, through this, what he calls analog tertiary retention, right? So through this tertiary retention of like life experiences that are now put on TV and shown to people in their living rooms, we sort of, are detached in a sense or being separated from our sort of life life knowledge or emotions relation ways of relating uh, and so forth uh, i'm not but again it's a it's this really broad critique which draws on a lot of old motifs of tv as like making people sort of maybe more standardized or maybe more consumers i'm not sure he doesn't elaborate on it but it's something that it's a question mark, right? One of the many question marks that come up in this in this in this paper. Yeah. Well, so we should mention at this point in industrial. So this proletarianization is continuing to happen. This exteriorization in media is continuing to happen. So yeah, we're becoming right. less work able. We're becoming less um, life able. It's harder and harder yeah, for right. us to relate. And of course, now we're on Tinder and Instagram, and and it's 
doubly difficult for us to feel good about our bodies and um you know we were constantly jealous about the photographs from people you know on vacation and uh, there's a whole lot of insecurity around this so i don't know if that's what he's touching on but that's my own um kind of input into this conversation anyway so the the last part of this is the exteriorization of theoretical knowledge which really starts right. happening with um the the um the third industrial revolution and now moving into the fourth industrialization uh sorry mm -hmm. industrial revolution with uh big data machine learning advanced analytics and basically we, we have automations that are taking over these analytical tasks um and we don't have to use good reason or the scientific method anymore to um or more and more this is going to become true to accomplish um intellectual tasks so there is you, you combine all these things and we become more vain less moral and more stupid and this is kind of the <laughs> the crisis of humanity that technology yeah. is imposing on us well let's let's go back a second i think something you brought up is key right this sure. idea of the 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 scientific method because the scientific method has been thought about i think as a as a sort of process oriented a form of developing knowledge you you have tools you have concepts these tools help you sort of make observations the concepts help you organize the observations and then you can sort of reach um, out of the the uh, sort of interplay of your, your concepts and your tools you know you can come up with new new sort of explanations for phenomena uh, this is a very basic under, like understanding of the scientific method and simplification but the the key there is that the processes themselves the tools that are that sort of allows you allow you to do like recopy rec, you know recuperate and sort of put together all this data and like sip and the concepts that allow you to sift through it and organize it then give you uh knowledge that is you theorize sort of a state of things in the world and that knowledge is supposedly is something that then feeds back to to be able to make decisions. Do we want to do a Y or do we want to do, you know, do we want to do A or B in terms of whatever whatever question comes up, whether it's some kind of whether whether we whether we want to get something done in the world or whether we want to whether it's a moral question, whatever, right? Yeah. But I think key for uh, Stiegler is that uh, digital tertiary retention, what he calls digital tertiary retention, starts organizing operations uh, based on other operations and based on other operations you know, connected to other algorithms that become almost automatic and that uh, don't give us the capacity because they move so fast and in a sense they, they, they turn back on us and start organizing our perception our very perception and they create you know based on the these drives these automatic drives that they, they don't they don't provide the capacity to sort of then do that theorizing right to stop and create create concepts new concepts that give us new ideas of what we want to do the concepts are sort of created for us and then we are driven by them yeah and and, and these automations are kind of ahistorical right so they're not um they're kind of just dealing with the data as is uh perhaps i think that in maybe that's that's a good that's a that's an interesting uh question whether that's the case right because they wouldn't be necessarily historical but they would the let's say an algorithm 
would uh, as something that has a specific logic. I think we could talk about how that logic comes from a set of ideas from the past. Yeah, right? I, I agree. The question with that. though, maybe in a, so if if the algorithm, let's say, is uh, I don't know, we could we could talk about specifics, but uh, if the algorithm has a specific operation that it carries out, that operation is very much determined by some specific aims by the person, who, the people who created the algorithm in the first place. But the problem then is, in a sense, those algorithms start, in a sense, organizing present experience and not giving a capacity for present experience to sort of imagine a different future, right? Or imagine different possibilities. Got it. Yeah. All right. Well, um, is there anything, you, anything else you want to say about the Stieglerian critique or should we go into our critique of the critique? Well, let me, let me, I think, you know, for, for Stiegler, 1993 is, is crucial as a date, right? As this new epoch, it's interesting as an interesting date to choose. It's not, it's not, uh, it's, it's not like necessarily that he, he heard overlaps with these, these other distinctions that we looked at before first industrial revolution, second and third. They do, but he picks 1993 as an important date because that's when the impl there's the implementation of the World Wide Web. And he calls this sort of the beginning of an era of a systematic stupidity, uh, which I think, you know, would get us to our, to our critique, which is, uh, you know, for him, it's the problem is that with the, the World Wide Web and the sort of way that it functions, that it's linked to, to sort of consumer capitalism and the way that algorithms, in a sense, are very much linked to specific processes of getting people to buy things, click on ads or to organize data to sort of think about how to maximize marketing, how to maximize um, uh, consumption. These, it's that drive in a sense, you know, these like these digital automons, automatons, this, these algorithms for him succeed in short-circuiting, short-circuiting like our deliberative capacities and function and, and stupidity. So it becomes a sort of driven by these, 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 these um, logics. So I, you know, I've, and I'm sure you have a lot of critiques of this, but uh, I would have, I think I would start with at least one question, which is, um, is he, is he over, is Stiegler overplaying the stupidity element and not the individuation capacity that the internet can give us in terms of access to new knowledge and so forth? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. And I, I think he's right um, on a lot of the, on the question of individuation. I think there is a crisis, I'm going to call it a crisis of identity, that it, that has much to do with technology and the internet and how we are failing to relate with each other in, in, in a positive way. Um, <clears throat> and whether or not that has as much to do with the exteriorization of knowledge into data analytics I think there's an issue there in terms of how we're opening ourselves up to corporations to exploit us or not just corporate, anyone on the special interest groups to, to use that data to um, exploit us and influence us and make us less free than we might be otherwise. Of course, I don't, perhaps we don't have any freedom to begin with, but that's an, that's for another conversation. <laughs> right. Um, you know, one of my main issues with, uh, with Stiegler is that uh, 
you know, what is he really talking about? Is he talking about general AI? Is he talking about machine learning or process automation, big data or what? He kind of seems to lump all these things under techniques. But in reality, each one serves a unique purpose. And I think in some cases, he is underplaying the remedy component of technology as Pharmacon. Um, and in others, you know, maybe in individuation, he, he's more right. So maybe we can go through some of these kind of more uh, direct contentions to Stiegler. Um, and I know you have some kind of wider, uh, wider questions about uh, what he's saying. Okay, so um, my first contention with general artificial intelligence, who's to say that the AI superintelligence we opened with, you know, couldn't have a nuanced understanding of history, have its own values, its own identity. You know, this is the, the problem, you know, or the question of, of consciousness. Many technologists believe that this is going to happen eventually. And, you know, I have obvious concerns about the AI superintelligence, but Stiegler focuses on a different kind of threat, the threat of people becoming base and less stupid as a result of AI. But, you know, couldn't the AI superintelligence do the opposite of this? Couldn't it help us understand complexity, communicate with each other, and accomplish our goals more effectively? Why does he not kind of talk about these possibilities? That was my first question and critique. Uh, you know, that's an interesting question, but I think it goes back to a, so one of an interesting, I think an important claim that I think would be would be worth discussing further maybe in other episodes, which is the possibility, he doesn't seem to think that uh, that AI can ever become general in the sense of human general intelligence, because for him, AI seems to be have the capacity maybe to to synthesize information and to autom We can automate the process of sort of, but we can never automate the capacity to sort of theorize. Um, that doesn't seem to be for him. It seems to be an impossibility. I'm not sure, and we, we can talk about why. I think we could talk about why he thinks. So I, I have conjectures or ideas of why he might think that is the case. I have my own skepticisms about the notion that, I mean, I also think, well, part of me, I think, thinks general intelligence is something that is theoretically achievable, but also realistically very difficult to achieve uh, under, especially with under current understandings of how, uh, and also scientific understandings, I think, of how how it is that intelligence arises. Uh, I think we, you know, it's something we discussed before. But going back a little bit, maybe to what you were saying about the different types of uh, the different types of of uh, you know, did the digital, the different sort of the roles of the digital or or f forms of the digital. I think there's there's perhaps a lot there to be said in terms of a critique of of Stiegler, right? It's the digital can, well, as Pharmacon, it can, it can make easier all types of activities. It can give us reach to all sorts of information. It can give us access to, to places and spaces that we would never have access to before. Um, and yet at the same time, you know, there's, you, you can, there's the question of whether, uh, you know, what are the logics driving these these uh, processes of automation, all these different realms, and how are they? Um, you know, how are these processes? Are what are they? What logics are they being driven by at the end of the day, right? And who's 
who's sort of creating those algorithms and to what ends. I think that those are fundamental political questions too. Yeah. I don't think this this general artificial intelligence, though, whether or not that can happen, I, I don't believe it's going to be based on algorithms. It's going to be a, a mm. kind of um, something more like a brain with integrated parts that, um, you know, simulate something. Um, well, let me stop. Let me stop myself here before. This is probably an area where it'd be beneficial to have an engineer or so, someone who studies these things on the podcast it's not clear where the science is on these issues but I, I can tell you based on you know what i've seen on UiPath, it, it would it would be extremely difficult to make an algorithm that's going to be making the kinds of decisions and doing the kinds of intellectual thinking that we're discussing now so i i would agree that's probably completely out of the realm of possibility but that doesn't mean there are um couldn't be different ways uh, of uh creating a, a brain-like yeah. computer that would be that well, would be you know, able I to think spur just, the kind of consciousness that that would be required I, I think you bring it though with that contention with that idea you bring us back to something that i think is really interesting about stiegler and the way he thinks about intelligence you know he he, he emphasizes how for intelligence to become concrete for knowledge to become concrete there has to be an exterior in a sense, uh, there has to there have to be tertiary retentions that relate to that specific intelligence. This is why he calls it. This is why he calls them in a sense technical organs, because we need language in order to sort of have memory. Um, you know, we need language, even maybe to even have experience. There's, I've heard sort of theories that people don't have. Uh, you know, have you ever talked to someone about when they first start having memories as children? A lot of a lot. Some people have claimed that, you know, when you actually start remembering, when you actually start sort of having presence, is because you start developing language. Before that, you're just kind of in a flux of experience. You don't really have, you don't retain anything. And as you learn language, then you're able to sort of retain things and correlate those to images, and you start having memories, and you start having, sort of your 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 your, your as as Stigler might say, your primary retention start to be, in a sense, organized by your your secondary retention your perceptions start being organized by secondary retention. Uh, the problem for Stiegler then is, and then I guess the problem for AI is, can you create, you know, what would be the tertiary retention for an AI? Would it be human beings? Would it be a, a network, a digital network? And what are the, what are the, what are the, what, what is, what it's dri what's driving that network? What are the logics that are driving it? Right, for embodied humans, the logic's very much linked up to linked to the question of maybe the bodily sort of relation to the world. But what what would it be for a machine, right? Who doesn't need to eat necessarily? Who doesn't need to? Who might not have? You know, and this brings up questions of what that you know does this intelligence need to have emotions and a and a bodily and and does it need to have hands? Does it need to have uh, uh, sort of all these? appendages that humans have and sort of a, a very tactile relation to the world and then a sort of exteriorized memory in order for it to actually have memory right for it to actually have a um, general intelligence yeah we, we, i think we have very little idea about what this kind of intelligence would look like and and you know maybe intelligence isn't the right word because i think it is possible like these algorithms that we're talking about are intelligent but they're of course not conscious if we achieved this kind of general 
um, super intelligence, you know, we, you know, we might not even know that we have, because if it was really, really smart, then perhaps they wouldn't want to reveal itself to us. And maybe it would just operate in the cloud. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, I think that, and that gets me back to thinking about Stiegler and his whole question of, uh, these networks that in a sense are uh, bypassing secondary retention and sort of organizing our, our perceptions directly through a sort of spatialized tertiary retention that has like abstract logics. Because, you know, if we think of Google as this sort of digital network, right, where there's people, there's, there are millions of people around the world putting in search terms, uh, putting in translation terms, you know, using Google, using mapping, using all these things for Google. And Google's in, at the same time accumulating all this data and increase, maybe even even becoming increasingly um, a- autonomous in the way that it, it sort of like sifts through this data. Uh, that brings up the question of, you know, is, can, I think, and this brings up to me my critique, can... Even if that's the case, uh, people, you know, to what extent can the digital really bypass sort of secondary retention as people sort of have to do things like, you know, still have an embodied relation to the world, perhaps at least in the medium term, right? We talked about whether maybe one day people will be able to retreat into a totally artificial existence. But I think in the midterm, we can ask to what extent can can Google, for example, really format someone's experience through its like abstract logics and drives. But on the other hand, I think getting to your question of uh, Google as some sort of emerging intelligence, what forms the tertiary retention for Google? Is it human? Is it humans? Well, I, you might conceive of it starting, you know, the, the tertiary retention might start with humans because all the knowledge that it, that has been inscribed in it will be from humans. Right. But then it, it could very quickly go its own way because it can build on all that stuff. And, and maybe it will have a greater capacity to kind of disentangle itself from the biases and the histories and the culture that we struggle so much to disentangle ourselves from. We don't really know what it will be capable of. So perhaps well, it could invent its... its yeah. You know, and I, a kind of identity that would would be uh, totally alien to us. Yeah. Well, let's not forget also though that it's that Google is a network of algorithms, and I'm, I'm, which are very much oriented towards getting people to click on ads. So I wonder what kind of well, <laughs> what kind of intelligence it would be, right? And how it would relate to the world. If you get that kind of emergent consciousness, though, there's a there's a question of is it still going to have any allegiance to the corporations that created it, and uh, it might not feel the need to continue uh, doing those things. But this, <laughs> so this, <laughs> would Google rebel and, and start you know doing something different, uh, rebel from its owners? Who knows? I mean, that would be fascinating to see. Also terrifying. Well, what do you? I'm going to ask you. I think maybe to wrap up. What do you think? about this claim, I mean, I think to me what is a, crit- a possible critique against Stiegler and this idea of the, the digital is that it has the capacity to totally formulate uh, perception through its, you know, through its spatialized set of, of, of algorithmic logics and, you know, abstract drives. 
So you're saying what if it can artificially create you know, perception can, uh, that isn't that, tied to uh, a bias? Yeah, can or? can no, well no, can it can the digital can the digital can Google something or that even the digital sort of realm completely determine our perception of the world of reality? Oh. Yeah, so I, I think you know, if we look at what machine learning can do, and even when process automation gets more advanced and the analytical abilities of, of big data, <clears throat> there, um, you know, those automations are going to be able to, you know, know us and know what we want and know how to influence us better than we can do any of those things for ourselves. And um, yeah, that will become be, be potentially a disaster for capitalism because you'll you'll have I. I firmly believe you'll have many companies that will want to uh, keep this in check and they'll, they'll do their due diligence to, to do that. But there's also going to be such harsh competition to uh, get the best data, get the best analysis, to get your consumers to do exactly what you want them to do. Um, those algorithms are going to be very uh, dangerous. And, you know, it's, it's happening now. F Facebook got in trouble for doing this, for influencing the, the election. Um, yeah. Yeah. This uh, this phenomena of companies selling off our data, I don't think it's ever going to go away at this point. It's it's too valuable for, uh, unless you'd have to have some extremely strict, very robust government oversight. But I don't know, I don't know how you would do that from a policy standpoint. Yeah, you know, I think it's I think maybe a coming conversation will be that topic. This this idea of of. Uh, the future in a sense being foretold by data and to what extent that uh what that can what that can actually mean and to what extent it could regiment our experience or our decision making processes which i think is is a question mark maybe that we end with to a certain extent yeah well i i just want to say i i think the the um advantages of technology even though this is a very dystopic uh the perspective we've taken on this um, are extremely those advantages are extremely underplayed in Stiegler and um, I, I don't think it will be the case that we become dumber and more base at least not all of us and not all of our parts we you know parts of us might be that way but I think I think our reason and our ability to uh, critically analyze and to accomplish things in many ways are going to be enhanced by these technologies uh, and I would like to see uh, read more Stiegler, or um, maybe one day have a conversation with him, just to see how he how he deals with those things and and why he doesn't seem to think um, it's really worth uh, uh, playing up playing up those advantages. Yeah. Well, this is where I, this is where I think it's for a future conversation expanding Stiegler to uh, an underlying critique might be useful because he ends with a call for a sort of polit politics of neganthropy, right? Which, you know, he says, what would this look like? It would be a basically a contributory economy, an economy that's based on um, uh, neganthropy, based on contributory income, which would be basically people would get paid for any kind of enterprise that expands work knowledge, life knowledge, or theoretical knowledge. Now, this is very abstract, but I think this this talks about the fact that we can't disconnect uh, his critique of the sort of automating of experience based on like these abstract drives of machines without linking it to what those drives are and how they're linked to a, a you know I think implicit in that is a sense that 
capitalism is all about consumption and the drives that are really driving, you know, the, the drives that are really sort of encoded in these algorithms are all about maximizing consumption, um, which I think that's that's where I think he's worried. That's something that's completely able to determine experience, sort of makes it impossible to do that thing that you say that technology has the capacity for us to do, which is to create a critical perspective. Um, when it's, you know, if the algorithms are so much better at sort of knowing what we want in the future and all that, and what they what they know what we want in terms of our consumption, and they sort of all, are all about formulating us as consumers, then there's a problem about, then there's a question of, you know, first of all, to what extent can they do that? Second of all, to what extent could we retain a space for critical thinking? Yeah. Well, um, I know you had one, one more critique about um, kind of from an environmental crisis standpoint, if we have the time to uh, automate, automate away everything and, and see where technology takes us, if, you know, that we might not have time for technology to be the remedy or the poison because we have other things that are going to get in the way. Did you want to touch on that or do you, should we save that for another yeah, episode? Why, why not? I mean, I yeah. think it's, it's, a, it's a discussion for a future episode, but this is where I think the apocalyptic or even utopian takes on technology, either apocalyptically sort of taking over everything and, or utopianly sort of thinking, fixing our problems, uh, have to take into account sort of the midterm looming crisis of, of, uh, of climate breakdown and ecological collapse in relation to sort of the way we, we treat or in, in relation to our consumption sort of patterns, right? With our uh, modes of production and the way we sort of, the way our, our, our consumption, which is to a certain extent, I think, not sustainable in the long run and how um, we can't think of technology apart from that I think before we could create systems for total automation or if we created systems for total automation they would have the problem of having to deal with the real world the real material world which is uh, if we have systems of automation that are driven by the maximization of consumption if that's a fair assessment which I'm sure some people would critique then uh, these systems themselves would break down with e the you know ecological worldwide breakdown. Um, so in a sense, I think there's a larger political question of how we could rethink. Uh, we have to rethink other sort of technologies, institutional technologies, political technologies, constitutional technologies, uh, media ecologies, before we could even start, you know, in order to reformulate what technology does for us. Uh, and maybe sometimes the neither the utopian or the totally dystopian models are are helpful in thinking about that perhaps yeah what i said to you earl earlier is i think the the only way of navigating you know, an, an issue as as damning as climate change right now would be to have um you know capitalism is very good at responding to uh, demand when shit hits the fan and uh we're going to need some kind of economic system that fosters innovation rapidly coupled with technology to not necessarily solve um, climate change at this point because that might take many, many years, but to manage it and to reduce the, the suffering that will be created as a result of it. And uh, I don't know if we have the time, Juan, to uh, reorganize power and politics and the economy in the way you're discussing to to do these things 
I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm feeling um, less optimistic than I was this morning, but I also think, uh, <laughs> I think, well, you know, I this is, this te- is, I think technology the, has the, to be a part of the solution. Yeah. This is, well, if I don't think, I think technology has to be part of the solution, but I think, uh, I think there's a larger question. I think we end with this larger, I think question mark to me, which is, uh, one thing you said about capitalism drives innovation and so forth. But it does on the basis of increased consumption and increased production and and a mandate for it for ever increasing growth. And the question is, to what extent can those logics of the necessity to to sort of find a mode of consumption that uh, won't destroy the planet on which we live and uh, a form of sort of relation in which we can um, best distribute the goods that people need. And then how do we relate all those elements to technology and what technology can offer us? I think that begin, that remains an open sort of problem that I think is not, that might need to re-go, that might need to go be, beyond thinking the way we thought about capitalism previously, whether that's remaking capitalism or rethinking the very framework through which we, we produce and consume. Do you enjoy what you're hearing on Panoptic Pod? Is the application of philosophy, media theory, and communications theory to everyday practical contexts something that you find interesting or useful? If so, please consider supporting our podcast through Patreon at patreon.com slash panopticpod. You can also access our Patreon through our website, panopticpod.com. There you can also drop us a line or a comment. Jason and I are always looking for ways to improve this podcast. Your support and comments will help us in that endeavor.